your Bible open there at Revelation and we're studying this evening chapter 2 verses 1 to 7. Um, We're thinking about the first of these seven churches to whom Jesus wrote a letter, the Ephesus church. And we're thinking of it under the theme, all head, no heart, all head, no heart. Well, you can still visit the site of the formerly great city of Ephesus today, what's left of it at least. Hannah and I were there nearly six years ago during our honeymoon. So for all of you who uh, saw the picture in the WhatsApp this afternoon and were waiting with bated breath to, to hear, it was on our honeymoon six years ago that we visited the site of Ephesus. And we were taken down the, the, what was the, the main market street of the city in its day. And as we walked past the huge outdoor theatre that's still standing, uh, our secular Muslim tour guide, that's how she described herself, a secular Muslim, uh, she was careful to point out, she said to us, this is the the same theatre that is mentioned in the Bible, in Acts chapter 19, where a riot almost broke out because of the preaching of the Apostle Paul. And so we saw that magnificent theatre, which has a capacity for 25,000 people still standing today. We also saw the symbol of the Greek goddess of victory, uh, a little symbol carved into a wall along the street, uh, two little fluttering wings. And that's the, that was the symbol of the Greek goddess Nike, which of course is the inspiration for the, the sports brand Nike today. On the one hand, it was fascinating to walk the same streets that the Apostle Paul and Timothy and the Apostle John would have walked to stand and sit in that huge theatre, to get a sense of perspective on some of the places the Bible tells us about. But on the other hand, friends, Ephesus is nearly all rubble. No one's left in Ephesus today, including the local church. And in fact, across the whole of the vast land of Turkey, referred to in the New Testament as Asia, there are very, very few churches at all. Lots of different reasons might explain that. But perhaps one of the main reasons is given to us here in Revelation 2 verse 5. Jesus Christ had a progress report for the church in Ephesus. There were some things that they were doing really well. But there was also something crucial that the church in Ephesus had lost. Jesus warns them in Revelation 2 verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Some churches close or move for good reasons. Maybe the place where they met for so long just isn't a population centre anymore. It was for many, many decades, but it's not anymore. And so they move to a nearby town or city that has a greater catchment area. Sometimes churches merge or they plant a new congregation. But sometimes, friends, Jesus closes churches. As we'll see today, he might even close churches that faithfully preach the gospel. And don't compromise on the truth. The rubble of Ephesus is a vivid reminder of this. And as a church, perhaps concerned first and foremost with what we preach, 
We need to pay special attention to what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. So I want you to notice three things about what Jesus says to the Ephesians this evening. First of all, Jesus commands commitment to his word. Jesus commands commitment to his word. Look at verse 2. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So Jesus begins by commending, encouraging the Ephesians for sticking to the truth. He commends them for not putting up with false teachers, people claiming to be apostles but who preached a false gospel. The Ephesians hadn't tolerated people like that. Look on down at verse 6. Jesus commends them again in verse 6. He says, Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans are mentioned again in one of the other letters to the churches. They seem to have been a group who claimed that Christians could sort of have the best of both worlds, so to speak, that Christians could indulge in a little bit of idolatry. They could celebrate some of the pagan worship practices, including sexual sin. And then, as well as that, they could claim to follow Jesus and worship with the church. And Jesus says to the Ephesians in verse 6, I'm glad that you hate that, because I hate that. Some people would like to tell you that Jesus doesn't hate anything. Some people would say, you know, Jesus is just so loving. He would never tell two people, whoever they are, that they they shouldn't sleep together or that they can't get married. Jesus doesn't mind how we worship him. As long as we do it in his name, he's happy with however we live our lives. No, friends. Jesus says when it comes to teaching that doesn't agree with his word, preaching that goes against what his true apostles preached. Jesus says, I hate it. But the church in Ephesus hadn't put up with such teaching. And Jesus says, well done. I'm pleased with you for that. Ephesus was a church that did not compromise on their doctrine, their teaching. And before he turns to some criticisms of the church, Jesus commends them for not compromising Their message. And it's all the more remarkable that the church didn't compromise when you consider what kind of city Ephesus was. Ephesus was one of the most influential cities in that part of the Roman world at that time. It was a leading city, it was a port city, so there was plenty of international trade and travel, and it was packed full of temples to pagan gods. Many of these pagan religions religions involved sexual immorality as part of their so-called worship. Many of them were, were simply brothels that went by the name of temples. In particular, Ephesus boasted the temple of Artemis or Diana, which we heard mentioned in our reading earlier. This was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a magnificent, gorgeous building. The Ephesians were so proud of it that on one occasion when it was destroyed by fire, the city officials refused to accept financial aid from the Roman government to rebuild the temple. The the Ephesian city insisted on rebuilding it themselves. 
And we saw some of the fervour over this temple when we read Acts 19 earlier. The statue makers who made a roaring trade in Ephesus. uh, They were accusing Paul of insulting the great Artemis uh, and the temple. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, they cried. That was the kind of place that Ephesus was, friends. It was a place that expected everyone to celebrate idolatry in the name of tolerance. And yet what does Jesus say to his church in Ephesus? Chapter 2 verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently. And bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. The church in Ephesus was taking its stand against all of this idolatry. It was refusing to compromise on these areas. Jesus says, I know what a slog it is. I know the pressure upon you. And I know that you have remained faithful to me. The church in Ephesus had remembered the warning Paul gave them the last time he saw them. Acts chapter 20 verse 29. Paul said to them, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Therefore, be alert, Paul had said. And the Ephesians had been alert. They knew their doctrine. And despite literally walking up and down streets day after day that tempted them to compromise, the Ephesians didn't. And for that, Jesus commends them. And I hope you see the great encouragement, friends, that that is to us today. That no matter how much pressure is placed upon us to compromise, the example of Ephesus shows us that it is possible. It is possible to remain faithful to Jesus. When it comes to observing the Lord's Day, we thought a little bit about it this morning. Something that, sadly, very few even Christians are doing today. But particularly when it comes to what we preach and teach about sexuality or about the absolute truth of the Scriptures, there has never been more pressure in our part of the world for churches to compromise. And some so-called churches have compromised. Some churches are now trying to claim that Jesus Christ loves to see people who call themselves Christians living all kinds of lifestyles and doing all kinds of things that God in his word has clearly told us he hates. And the pressure in some areas in particular is growing. A couple of weeks ago there was an informal debate in Westminster about banning so-called gay conversion therapy. It's an intentionally vague term cooked up by the LGBT lobby. They're using it to try to frighten church pastors into not praying for someone who is struggling with same-sex attraction. They don't want churches calling people to repent of sexual sin. We call people to repent of all kinds of sins. Financial sin, verbal sin, violent sin. But the LGBT lobby doesn't want us telling people to repent of sexual sin. And as well as activists, there were sitting MPs who openly said publicly a few weeks ago that they believe it should be illegal for church pastors in this country to pray for someone struggling with same-sex attraction. Or even essentially to preach about it from the pulpit. 
There's a similar debate scheduled for Stormont in a couple of weeks' time. When it comes to obeying God and how we worship, following what the Bible says when it comes to who is in church leadership or practicing church discipline, and in particular in our culture at the minute, the sexuality issue, friends, these are all areas where we might feel, can we really hold the line? Is it possible under all this pressure to remain faithful to the Bible, to the truth? Well, the encouragement of what Jesus says to the Ephesians is that yes, it is possible. The, Ephesians, the Ephesian church did it. And by God's grace, we can do it too. We can remain faithful to the teaching of God's word. And if we are, and if we do, Jesus will commend us. What a blessing it is, and we'll see this in all the letters. What a blessing it is to hear Jesus say, I know. I know. I know the pressure. I know the temptations. I know the opposition. I know it's been a slog. I know that it's costing you popularity and respect. I know others have compromised already. But Jesus, friends, commends the church that doesn't compromise that hates sin, that doesn't put up with false teachers. By God's grace, may we be such a church. So Jesus commends commitment to his word. But secondly, Jesus condemns a lack of love. He condemns a lack of love. Jesus started with the positives, which we should always do on a personal level or on a, on a greater level. We should start with what is good, with what is commendable. But just look at verse 4. Jesus says, But I have this against you. I have this against you. Friends, imagine sitting in the room in Ephesus when those words were first read out. How would you feel as a church member, how would the pastor have felt reading these words? Imagine hearing that there is something in your congregation that Jesus doesn't like. If we're Christians, that should immediately fill us with concern. What does Jesus not want to see in our church? What do we need to change? What, is there something that we need to put right? Well, Jesus tells them in verse 4, I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Ephesus had become a church that you might say looked good on paper. You wouldn't have found one thing wrong in their website's doctrinal statement. In fact, they would have included links to their confession of faith and their subordinate standards if they had had a website. They would have made very clear that you couldn't become a member of their church and keep on visiting the city temples and brothels and guilds that included idolatry. Friends, this was a church that none other than the Apostle Paul had been involved in planting. This church had been well taught, well catechized. The debates over doctrine had been, sh had been short and they had been sorted out long ago. Their confession of faith was written down and it wasn't going to be changed. They could smell a heretic a mile away. Jesus commanded them for all of that. But he says, you've lost your love. You have lost 
your love, they had become a cold-hearted, loveless church. 30 or 40 years after Paul first planted this church, the second generation of the Ephesus church was all head and no heart. And you might ask, well, in what way specifically were they not a loving church? Well, I don't think we're stretching the bounds of the text to say that this was a general loss of love for God, for one another, and for the world to which they were supposed to be witnessing. A, love, a, lo- a loss of love for God, for one another, and for the world to which they were supposed to be witnessing. The reason I mention the world that they were supposed to be witnessing is because Jesus invokes that language of the lampstand. He says, I will remove you from your lampstand. The light, uh, obviously, being a witness to the world. And you see, if you lose your love for any one of these friends, if you lose your love for God, for fellow Christians, or for the needy, sinful world, it has a knock-on effect on your love for the others. Listen to the words of 1 John 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. See how John intertwines those two commandments. And what did Jesus say were the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Who's your neighbour? Anyone and everyone. Anyone and everyone. Your fellow Christians are your neighbours. But the unbelievers that we live alongside or work alongside or play alongside, they are our neighbours as well. So some of our neighbours are in the church and some of our neighbours are out in the world. And quite simply, friends, love for God and love for our neighbours cannot be separated from one another. If you're someone who says, oh yes, I do love God, but you know, the church these days, such a mess. In fact, I've been around a few churches and I just don't think there are any out there that are worth committing to. If that's your attitude, be very careful. That's the bride of Jesus Christ you're talking about. Is she perfect? No. And neither are you. But we're called to love one another. Equally, it's possible for a church to preach the truth and have a membership role full of committed worshippers and to exercise church discipline and to worship in the biblically required ways but to be in a bit of a holy huddle. One preacher calls it the frozen chosen. No interest in going out there to the world with the good news of Jesus Christ, content just to turn in on ourselves. And on the rare occasion when a non-Christian finds their way into the building, everyone gets very nervous and hopes they don't have to be the one to speak to this stranger and hopes that this newcomer isn't bringing any kind of baggage with them that the church might have to get involved with. Hopes deep down that the stranger goes somewhere else next week. Is God pleased with the worship of that kind of church? No. Is that church really bringing any glory to God? No. 
That's why Jesus warns the Ephesians in verse 5. If this doesn't change, I'm going to remove you from your lampstand. If you're not interested in being a loving witness to the world around you, then I'll shut your doors and I'll snuff you out. And as a reformed Presbyterian confessional local church, covenanters, friends, we need to take these words especially seriously. Especially seriously. Our denomination has held to the same confession of faith for centuries. In the history of our small denomination, I'm not aware of any serious division over any point of doctrine at a synodical level, ever. Yes, there have been men removed from their pulpit for one reason or another, but even that number is very, very small. Most of our growth, where we do see growth in our denomination, it often comes from Christians who want to get more Bible teaching than they got in their previous church. They're, they're hungry for the word and we, we welcome everyone in and we give thanks for that. But friends, the danger is that we could become all head and no heart. Our denomination puts huge importance on congregations having a pastor, primarily a pastor there to preach the word. And, and again, that's good and we should do that. Churches need to be spiritually fed and cared for. We should be praying as we seek to do frequently for our vacant congregations. But is our desire to fill vacant pulpits matched by a desire to plant new churches in places like Dublin, and Paris and Rome, the modern day Ephesus-like cities that are spiritual deserts? <clears throat> And in case we're still thinking, well, we have to get our teaching right before we concern ourselves with all these other things. We have to, we can work out, we can work in all these other things, but surely we have to focus on the teaching first. Well, friends, we're going to see in the next few weeks that some of the other churches that Jesus spoke to, they had compromised on their teaching. They were tolerating sexual sin. They were becoming worldly. They weren't holding to the truth. But friends, the only church that Jesus explicitly threatens with closure is Ephesus. The church that had its teaching right, but that was all head and no heart. And so we must examine ourselves. By God's grace, friends, may we be a church known and respected and attractive, not just for what we teach, but for the way that we love one another and love the world around us and seek to be loving witnesses to the world around us. My very first week, I focused in on the church in Acts chapter 2, the early church in Jerusalem. They were devoted to four things, to the word, to worship, to fellowship and to witness, to all of those things, not just to one or two. And so by God's grace, friends, may we not become a church that is all head and no heart. Jesus commends commitment to his word. He condemns a lack of love. And thirdly and finally this evening, Jesus commands repentance and promises fruitfulness. Jesus commands repentance and promises fruitfulness. Jesus doesn't just tell the Ephesians what's gone wrong. 
thankfully, graciously, he tells them how it can be put right. And here we see the shepherding care of Jesus' friends. Excuse me. Yes, he has strong words for his people. But he also provides them with a way forward. Look at verse 5. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Several of the churches to whom Jesus writes these letters. Are told to repent of something or other. To repent needs to be said often. Repentance means you turn around. You were going in one direction, you turn and you go in the opposite direction, spiritually speaking. Perhaps even sometimes physically speaking. You don't go to the places or the people that were causing you temptation or to stumble into sin. You turn away from them, spiritually or physically. Notice, friends, that an established second generation church that knows its Bible and has good teaching is nonetheless told to repent. Repentance isn't just what you do to become a Christian. Repentance is what it takes to continue as a Christian. This side of heaven, we will constantly be finding things that we need to turn from. And other things that we need to turn towards. And for the Ephesians, they needed to repent and turn away from this loveless attitude. They needed to rekindle love for one another and for God. And Jesus says that they can do this. By remembering what things used to be like. So he says you know. You, you, used to be, you used to be fine in this regard. Things used to be okay. Remember the way things used to be. Jesus says. There were smiles on their faces. As they gathered for worship. They didn't just sing the right words. They also had joy in their hearts and souls. As they sang those words. <laughs> they used to take more time. For one another perhaps. They would have called at each other's houses. And. Invited each other in for dinner and sought to foster good fellowship. Perhaps there had been a time when rather than just criticizing the idol worshippers at the temple of Artemis. They had gone out and witnessed to them. They invited them to worship. They prayed for them. Maybe like Paul had done. They publicly preached to them. Jesus says do the things that you did at first. Get back to those good works, those works that were marked by love for God and for neighbour. I think it's a good time for us to be considering Jesus' words to the churches in Revelation. All the churches, not just Ephesus, but given this strange moment in time that we find ourselves in. Most church activities have been suspended for over a year now. Even weekly worship has been very different and continues to be. In the weeks and months ahead, we hope that things are going to slowly get back to normal. But friends, rather than just going straight back into the same things that perhaps we've done for a long time, maybe this is a good time for us to consider what works that we can and should be doing and how we should do them. Are there good works that we can get back to in due course? Are there other works that we should just bring to an end? Are there new opportunities for us to shine on our lampstand here in Dremore? Were there things that we had been doing up until last year that weren't bad things to do, but maybe it got to the point where we just weren't do we were just doing them because we'd always done them? Let's make it a point of prayer in the months to come that whatever we choose to do as a church. 
That love for God and love for one another and love for our community would motivate us in our public worship, our fellowship, our witness to the world. Every relationship needs to be reassessed every so often. Friendships, working relationships, marriages. The parties involved need to take time to consider how things are going. If perhaps more time or effort needs to be given. If the relationship has perhaps gone a bit cold. And Likewise, friends, Jesus tells the church that have become all head and no heart to repent. Take a look, take stock, get back to doing things in the way that you once did them. And Jesus also finishes by giving a a wonderful promise to the Ephesians. If you look at the end of verse 7, he says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Those words, to the one who conquers, appear in each of the seven letters to the seven churches. And the word conquer would have been particularly challenging for the Ephesians. It comes from the Greek word nikau. As I mentioned earlier, the Greek goddess Nike was worshipped in Ephesus. The goddess who gives victory. We've already seen in Revelation chapter 1 how Jesus was the true victor. The one who had conquered Satan, sin and death. And he says to the Ephesians, if you do as I command, you will be the real conquerors. Forget about that idol that's worshipped in Ephesus. You will be the true conquerors. If you repent, if you truly love the Lord Jesus Christ and obey his word, eventually you will have the full and final victory. In fact, Jesus says that they will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. That's echoing back, of course, to the Garden of Eden. We'll be thinking much more about that part of God's word in the the next few weeks in Genesis, God willing. Jesus' words there remind us of the time and place where things were perfect. There was perfect love between the man and the woman and creation. Perfect love between God and human beings. Friends, Jesus is promising that for those who obey his word with love, There is a future paradise with him waiting for us. And friends, Jesus is also reminding the Ephesians that there's more to to existence than what we see here and now in the world. The temple to Artemis in Ephesus was magnificent. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Today, it's rubble. It's rubble. I've seen it for myself. You wouldn't even know it had been anything special if it wasn't for the tour guide pointing it out to you along the road. And that's exactly what every other man-made structure and religion and project is going to be by the time Jesus comes back, friends. The sports stadiums, the shopping malls, the Broadway theatres, the online influencers, it's all going to fade away. It's all going to be rubble. And Jesus warned the Ephesians... Don't be like that. Don't just fade away. Don't force me to remove you from your lamp, your lampstand. Repent. Remember the love you used to have for God, for one another, for the world. Get back to that. Get back to loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbour as yourself. 
And if you do, Jesus says, paradise is waiting for you. Life with the Lord Jesus Christ who died and who is risen, who is the conqueror. Life forever with him is waiting for you. Just keep going. Keep repenting. Keep loving. Keep witnessing. And paradise will be yours. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.